Carter. I'm Eloa. And I'm Erin. And if you don't know three black bitches who love true crime, you do now. This is the I Ain't a Killer podcast. We're back, y'all. For Lucky 13. Oh, yeah, this is 13. Yay, I'm so happy. That's so exciting. Um, we are joined with a guest host. Hey, it's me. It's on the building. Um, my name is Kay. Yeah. This yeah. is our friend Kay. They're filling in for Carter today. Um, Kay and I work together. And yeah. Carter works with us, too. Yes. That's how we all met. But we're also really good friends. And then Kay and Ellie are best friends. Yeah. Yes. I'm the odd one out. I just, you know, I'm a socialite. <laughs> I hang with the stars. <laughs> all right. I'm so excited to have Kay here. Yeah. Right, I'm so excited to be here. Yay. Thanks for coming. Yes. So for current and crime, what we got? <clears throat> well, um, we were talking about the Travis Scott thing. Huh? Oh, yeah, we were. Yeah. Um, what the fuck? It's so <laughs> sticky. I'm like, what the fuck? That whole yeah. situation. I mean, our group chat is like, like <laughs> it's been going off since it happened everybody got their opinions and stuff like that i don't even know what to think because i don't know at what level do you fail to like keep something like that from happening like what the fuck was it like, i've been a tra- i've been to a travis scott concert before and i was on the floor i didn't do the mosh oh shit yeah but there was space and people were still getting hurt i mean mm. you know they're like throwing their bodies around so yeah. people are like bound to hurt something but I can't imagine being like literally so close together and still trying to move like that. Yeah. So people be hitting people too, knocking people over. Right. Ellie said she want to go to one. So she want to go to a mosh pit. Yeah, she want to be in a mosh pit after yeah. this. No, no. no. <laughs> I'm like still. She just said it like five minutes. I mean, ago. <laughs> ideally, I would like to be part of a mosh pit, but I also don't want to get punched or you know murdered. So it's just I don't know. It's just like that conflict of you know. I want to have fun and I want to rage, but like maybe at a Rico Nasty concert. Cute, because mm, yeah. I, I saw her at Afropunk and that shit was fire. Well, I heard that they weren't um, like fully checking people in, like yeah. in the, in the beginning. Style. Yeah, and there were like way more people than there should have been. Oh, so there was like, oh, okay, so yeah. Nazi. And they there. like, I guess there was requirements for vaccines or like negative COVID tests, and they weren't they checking that. Check yeah, no. no. Who knows how many people got COVID from that? <laughs> oh, <laughs> right, it's God. a super oh super spreader event. Yeah. yeah, and then I heard somebody like. Somebody was like a security guard and they just worked the event, but they didn't even check them in. They just went to their post or whatever. And just stood there. And I was like, are you kidding me? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you could fake and just have a job? Like, yeah. shit, I didn't try to have one of these corporate offices go give me a check. <laughs> like, just, stand right. just walk in there. But. <laughs> Apparently, um, he like does it at a lot of his concerts, though. Mm. What, the mosh pit? Like, he doesn't really care about, like... <laughs> The audience, like, it's always something going wrong. Or, like, this. I was watching TikTok and someone was talking about um, that they deal with, like, they when they went to some festival and he performed at, mm-hmm. there was, they was, like, literally scared for their life. Really? Oh, fuck no. So it's like, yeah. this has always been happening. It just finally got to the, like, worst possible yeah. scenario. Yeah. Damn. So eight people died, I think. Eight yeah. died, not, like, one was, like, in a coma or something? Yeah. Oh, yeah. She, I think she just was pronounced brain dead, like, this morning. And they're all oh. young. Like, teenagers, early 20s. Mm-hmm. But That's... it's, like, 300 that were injured, I think, or something. All in all. Oh, I don't know. But... That's, like, I'm, like, so are mosh pits ever going to be a thing again? I think so. I don't, I, in general, I don't think people are 
so scared of this. And honestly, because of like the whole culture around like alt nigga shit, like mm-hmm. it might entice crowds to be a part of mosh pits mm-hmm. even more now. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's like super, super dangerous. And like only the most hardcore mm-hmm. is going to be mm-hmm. the ones that'll go to these concerts and shit. So I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. I, don't I know. feel like it's, it depends on like the artist because if you like pay attention to the artist. When they're performing and they see somebody hurt, it's like a lot of videos going around yeah, now uh-huh. about artists like actually like, oh, stop, stop, stop everything. Yeah, I saw a Tiana Taylor one. Yeah. Yeah. It was another one, too. It was a few of them, though. They've been going around. Mm. But, yeah. I wonder, like, because, you know, especially in mosh pits when it gets really hot, I'm sure a lot of people just, like, pass out. Oh they're God. drunk. They're on drugs. Oh, so I'm man. wondering... And I'm just speculating because I don't know. I wonder if he saw that people were passing out, but kind of just assumed it was like alcohol related or mm-hmm. like heat problems. And he didn't really think that, oh shit, people are dead. And yeah. that's why he continued the show. I don't know. Yeah, I, don't, I can't. Screaming for help. Like yes, on the I did videos. See that. Child. He was like, bobbing his head. It was like, show. stop the show. Oh my what? God. I didn't yeah. see that. I, didn't oh, see that. Yeah, I heard the I'll one. Find it. And they were like, Travis, <laughs> Travis. And he's like, and it's like people dying. So I was like, help, help me, help. Stop this, help. People was getting on the stage and was getting turned around because like they were coming, like trying to get help. Yeah. And like people oh, were yes, turning around to like crew was turning them around. I'm like what? <laughs> but it's been other videos of him like being like a kind of a messed up person uh-huh. or whatever. Like it was one person like recording him for like some kind of festival. And he, like, went off on him on stage, on the mic. Like, it was like, oh, I don't know you. Like, just embarrassing him. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, well, um, I know there's a lot of, like, legal stuff going on. Like, people suing him. Yeah. Um, they said it could add up to the billions. And oh it's messy. I love financial corruption and, like, all this shit. So I'm trying to figure out what's what's the mess. Billions? Like, what's going on? Yeah. Because I, I feel like they should have insurance on all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how much it could actually be. Like, do they have $3 billion worth of insurance on fucking Astro? I don't fucking know. I, yeah. I, yeah. I feel like I'd be surprised if it was that much. Like, yeah. when you get insurance, you're not assuming somebody's going to die. Yeah. Yeah. You're thinking somebody's going to get hurt or, like, a cameraman's going to fall or something. Right. But I guess we'll find out. The story is still developing. As of now, maybe when this episode comes out, there will be more. But yeah. We'll oh, still talk about it, though, because it's messy and I love messy. There's been a lot of discourse, too, about, like, is he in the wrong or who's right. really in the wrong? I'm like, everybody who's involved. I think. <laughs> right. I'm like, right. everybody. Whoever his security, like, man, I don't know what it's called. Security manager. Right. Like, there weren't, wasn't enough security. Mm-hmm. They didn't check people. And then the medics were, like, extremely understaffed. Mm -hmm. It was just a lot of shit. You can't... I mean, he's the face of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense as to why people are pointing fingers at him. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you also have to point fingers at all the other people that were involved. Right. And why are y'all medics understaffed when y'all got all this money to put on a whole festival? I saw a TikTok of one of the medics from the uh, concert. And he said that it was, like, um, 150 medics throughout the whole thing mm-hmm. but you know it was like tens of thousands of people yeah so that's not nearly as much and it's a festival so right. it's like spread out people are all over the place and then on top of the crowds being on top of each other the medics couldn't even get through anybody mm-hmm. so he was just like like they were just so unprepared i'm thinking if you have like one medic for every what 20 people that's at least 500 medics yeah and i don't even reasonable. know exactly how many you're supposed to have on staff but it's that's nowhere near enough. Like, not even half of what you need enough. So. Right. Yeah, but... Damn. 
we'll definitely keep y'all updated. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, and we also have an update from the Heather Mack case, the story that Carter did last week. Uh, so we left off with her um, being deported, and then as soon as she landed, she was um, she was arrested again for conspiracy to yeah. commit murder, mm-hmm. um, which is which is bullshit because she should have been extradited in the first yeah. place. Because they're saying like she conspired while on U.S. soil, so it makes no sense why they didn't just charge her with it from the jump but yeah. here we are especially when they charged the friend who they conspired with they charged him immediately right. so she should have been extradited but anyway this is an article from abc7 uh, by michelle Gar- garlando garlardo uh heather mack remains in jail after her hearing uh next court date is in 2022 heather mack who was just released from a bali prison after serving seven years for the murder of her mother will remain in american jail for now Mack was convicted in Indonesia, along with her then-boyfriend, then boyfriend, Tommy Schaefer, of murdering her mother, Sheila Von Weiss Mack, and stuffing her body into a suitcase while they were on vacation in Bali. First of all, did y'all see that um, picture we posted on the Instagram of that suitcase? Oh, that my shit God. was so small. Like, when Carter was saying it, I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. You know? But that shit was small. It's smaller than what I imagined. Yeah, yeah, I'm like, what the fuck? That's mini luggage that you take on a road trip, girl. <laughs> like, what the, the fuck? Trip. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then it was like one of those waterproof cases. So blood, yeah. the blood showed up really well on the outside of the case. And that's and just like, up. y'all, that was a silly thing to yeah. not wipe that damn blood. Yeah. But it was a silly thing to even fly him out there girl you should have took that money and flew back to the u.s and said what about your business yeah Mm -hmm. upon her return to the u.s after her release um mac was taken into custody by american law enforcement and charged with conspiracy sitting in an orange jumpsuit orange jumpsuit feet shackled mac sat quietly inside a federal courtroom wednesday scanning those around her apparently in search of a familiar face among them, she would have seen her uncle, her aunt and uncle, Debbie and Bill uh, Weiss. Weiss. Damn. So they um, weren't there to support her. I guess not. <laughs> I'm guessing not. I'm assuming not. Yeah. Uh, or maybe that's probably like the first time that she's seen them since ever. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, she killed their sister. Yeah. As difficult as... Uh, as difficult as this is for our family and for all of Sheila's friends, we are pleased that Sheila will finally have her day in court, oh. Bill Vice said. Yeah, so he's not on her side. Yeah, most definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're probably still reeling from all of this since it's still the open case, technically. Mm-hmm. Uh, a week after arriving back in the U.S., the 26-year-old faced a judge for the second time. She stands accused of uh, conspiracy to commit murder and obstruction of justice. While it was not really expected that she would be released on bail in the agreement revealed in court today, her defense attorney reserve the right to raise the issue of her release uh, at a later date. Um, her next court date is set for January 18th, which prosecutors are requesting time to go through what they call a voluminous amount of evidence. And so, yeah. I can't imagine going through like your whole jail sentence, mm-hmm. getting out, coming back to the U.S., and then mm. boom, you're right. back in jail. And being rehabilitated and having a good relationship <laughs> With her daughter, well, her daughter having a good foster family, uh-huh. the, her ex-boyfriend getting saved and stuff, and then boom, y'all got to come back here and face the music again. Like all over again. All yeah. over again. Surprise. 
<laughs> and then they, they did surprise they me. They did. Even, as soon as she landed, like, did she even make it out of the airport? I like, don't think so. Jeez. Oh my goodness, that's so fucked up. Yeah, I feel like that's. I feel like at that point, it's a civil case. Like they should just take it to civil court to to see if she did can you know conspire on U.S. soil or whatever. Mm-hmm. Since they already charged the friend, there's nobody else to charge. There's no more punishment to be had out of that situation. Right. I wonder if they're going to do the same to the old boy. Because he's still in jail, right? He got like 18 years or something like that. All right, y'all. We'll be right back after we pay some bills. Are you a huge cunt? Us too. Wait, can we even say cunt? Of course. It's empowering these days. Cunt, 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 cunt. I'm Ange Ballastone, a.k.a. the drag queen, Fat Girl Gina. And I'm Mike Fails, just a normal gay guy, I guess? And we're the hosts of The Big Cunty Couch, a gorgeous new talk show podcast where we invite queers and peers to sit, bitch, and be fierce on a huge-ass couch while we gab about all things gay. So come get cozy and cunty with us. We're pan for platforms, so find us anywhere online and get listening, sweetie. Or watching. Or both. Otherwise, why the hell am I in full drag? And we'll see you on The Big Oh, wait. I thought we were going to say that together. No. (laughs) On the big c***y couch. Was he on U.S. soil when it... um, He's... Yeah, because they talked about it. Okay, with him. Okay, Yeah, but he's still in jail in Bali. So I'm like, whenever he gets out... Just don't come back. That's what I said, just don't come back. I don't think... I mean, she didn't want to come back and they forced her. Oh, they did. Oh, yeah, because she got out. They de- deported her from Bali, or I don't know what it was. Yeah, I think they did deport her. She's gonna go somewhere else. She should have went somewhere else. That's what she did. That's, that's what I said. That's what I was like on the layover. It's giving Ghislaine Maxwell. Right. I was like, bitch, she ran. Like, sorry about her. Not in New York with uh, a little bit of fall over Girl, if you got even the slightest bit of, I don't care if you don't have any money. Just yeah, I don't run away. I don't care. Yeah, Something. But they probably don't play that shit over there. They probably don't have no types of resources to get away from the cops there. They probably escorted her directly from the prison to the airport. Right, that's true. You going home. (sighs) Well, we'll keep y'all updated on what happens. But I guess as of now, we're just waiting on her court date. Yeah, which is until next year. Next year. Which is soon. (laughs) Yeah, actually. Yeah, it's two months away. Right. Uh, Okay. Okay. Oh, lastly, before we start on the main story. So we got a sponsorship donation. Money, 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 money. Yeah, it's somebody who has donated to us before. And I remember that they had uplifted that their dad is hard of hearing or deaf. So they appreciate that we're able to do the um, transcripts. So Angela Saunders, thank you again for sponsoring this episode. And if you want to sponsor our episodes and make it easier for folks that are hard of hearing or deaf to participate in the content, you can send us a donation through our cash app in the description. Okay, cool. So uh, (laughs) with that being said, we'll come back with the main story. All right, y'all, we're back with the main story. I'm so ready. Okay, so this one, if y'all listened to the last episode that I was the lead investigator for, I think it was episode 10 about John List. In the beginning, we did like little snippets of Halloween crimes, and we talked about the toolbox killers. So that was interesting to me, and I decided to do the full research, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. 
I'm scared. Let's go. Let's go. I'm like, I'm scared and I already know what's happening. Uh, just so y'all know, this shit is long as fuck. I don't know. We'll see how, where we end up, but normally, <laughs> right, sit down, get comfortable. Because normally my notes are like five to six pages. This one's 11, so <laughs> y'all can uh, know how long it is from that. Okay, so Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris are known as the toolbox killers. And I'll just pause right there because they're actually known as the toolbox killer because when the media first got like notice of this story, they thought it was just one person. Mm -hmm. So they called them the toolbox killer, but it was really two people. So sometimes you'll see them called as like singular, sometimes plural, whatever. So Lawrence Bittaker was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on September 27th, 1940. He was a Libra. I don't know anything about that, but that's for folks who are interested. <laughs> Carter will update us. Yeah, Carter, Carter will uh, check in. <laughs> so his birth mother put him into an orphanage as an infant because both of his parents didn't want to have any children. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. It's already down. <laughs> why, does, why is every story always like, oh, they were orphaned and it's storming outside? <laughs> the thing is, that usually is what it is. Yeah. Oh, my God. Like, it, there's like always some type of root in like a childhood traumatic mm -hmm. event or something yeah you weren't here for the earlier episodes but we were looking at like certain things that make people more likely to be serial killers so mm -hmm. like a lot of serial killers have like a very serious head injury mm -hmm. they're born in the pacific northwest and stuff like that so this isn't i think like this is another one of those common things like, yeah it's like so he was put into an orphanage, but he was adopted as an infant by Mr. and Mrs. George Bittaker. And I tried to find the wife's name, but they just refused to give it. And she was just known as Mrs. George Bittaker. But that's that. So George, his adoptive father, worked in air aircraft factories and it forced them to move around a lot. So they went from Pennsylvania to Florida to Ohio, and then they finally settled in California. So I'm going to go through his long rap sheet because this shit is long, but we're going to get through it. <laughs> so his first time being arrested was for shoplifting at the age of 12, and he obtained a minor criminal record over the next four years, which included further arrests for shoplifting in addition to petty theft. And it brought him to the attention of the juvenile authorities. So they were they just knew him because he was always getting arrested for um, stealing. Did they say what he was stealing? No. Okay. I'm thinking like shampoo. Like <laughs> Wasn't knives? Like, I'm thinking about the shit I used to do. They didn't say what he stole, but not toolboxes. <laughs> hey, look at that. <laughs> um, so he later claimed that his theft-related offenses that he committed during his adolescence were attempts to compensate for the lack of love that he received from his parents. Mm. So yeah, that's, that's so sad. It was reported that he had an IQ of 138. Which I don't know what that means, but they said it was in the 99th percentile. I think that's extremely smart. Yeah, yeah. so he's think... smart as fuck. Well, book smart as fuck. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, not street. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, he was a little street smart um, until the end, but here we go. <laughs> so he considered school to be tedious, which I feel like is pretty common with like super smart people. Mm -hmm. And he eventually dropped out in 1957 and he was 17. And he also didn't want to go to school because he was constantly getting in trouble with the law. He just felt like it was unnecessary. So shortly after he dropped out, he was arrested for car theft. And some sources say that it was Grand Theft Auto. He was arrested for leaving the scene of a hit and run and for evading arrest. And because of that, he was imprisoned in California Youth Authority until he was 19. And then he was released 
And once he was released, he discovered that his adoptive parents had disowned him and moved to another state. Oh, well, damn. Yeah. And then he would never see them again. What the fuck? Yeah. So they just moved while he was locked up. That's so fucked. Why you tell him or anything? Why you adopt the baby and just... (laughs) Just And not want the baby. (laughs) Yeah. It's not like a dog. You can't just take it back to the pound. Right. the whole child. Right. So he didn't have parents anymore. So after he finished that sentence, he was arrested by the FBI in Louisiana for violating the Interstate Motor Vehicle Theft Act, which basically means that he transported a stolen vehicle across state lines. And in August of 1959, and he was still 19, he was sentenced to 18 months in prison prison to be served at a federal reformatory in Oklahoma. He was transferred to the United States Medical Center for federal, Federal Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri, because of good behavior. And he later claimed that this is where he had his first sexual experience. And he didn't give any other details besides that it was a woman. So he only served one third of his sentence, which is six months. I don't know. That's the only detail. That's like, <laughs> the only one was looking at me. Uh, That's like, all I know. It's, it's, cause, what? Say it. Like okay, so you have your first sexual experience in jail. Mm-hmm. And you specify that it was a woman. Those are the only details. Maybe that's how people expect it to be oh, God. Not a woman. Yeah. Or, like, or maybe it wasn't. Okay. He's was she a guard? Did they allow women to be guards back then? They didn't specify. They didn't have a. They had a co-ed prison. Like I don't. Well, this was a medical center. Oh yeah, oh. nurses. So I mean, doctors. they were still prisoners, but it could have mm-hmm. been nurses, doctors, okay, okay. whoever. Okay. So that's a, that's the only details about that. Okay, so he only, served, <laughs> he only served one third of his sentence, which was six months, and he was released um, and made his way back to California. Okay. So this release thing is like a common occurrence in his life, and it's very much it's giving, giving white, white, <laughs> it's giving white male, it's giving all of that. Yeah. So he didn't relax for a long time, and within months of his release, he was quickly arrested for a robbery in December of 1960 in Los Angeles. And in May of 1961, he was sentenced to serve an indeterminate time of no longer than 15 years. I've never heard of that. So, so he was released when he originally when he was 18, and his parents were gone by then. 19. 19. Mm-hmm. So, like, what did he do? He just bullshit or extortion? I guess he just, like, I mean, he just stole a little, you know, just stole stole some gum, you know, <laughs> to pay rent. Like, and maybe if y'all loved him, he wouldn't feel like he needed to steal some a loaf of bread or whatever mm-hmm. the fuck he stole. Mm-hmm. He it was just in and out of jail. I mean, I'm sure he had people that he could uh, stay with, but they didn't really talk about that. Mm-hmm. So, um, in May of 1961, he was sentenced to serve an indeterminate amount of time in state prison, um, not exceeding 15 years. So basically, he could serve between one and 15 years. Indeterminate, like oh, we'll let him out when when. Uh, Time out. Yeah. <laughs> like, Just put your nose in the corner. Sucks. No. I mean, not only being in jail, but then not even knowing when you could get out. Like, it right. could be tomorrow or it could be 10 years from now. That sucks. Okay. <laughs> I'm already exhausted. I know. Exhausting. <laughs> We're only on page two. <laughs> okay, so while he was incarcerated for this robbery, he was diagnosed by a psychiatrist as being paranoid and highly manipulative. The psychiatrist described him as having considerable concealed hostility and little control over his impulses. So besides being diagnosed with this, he was conditionally released in 1963 after completing just two years of his sentence. In October of 1964, two months after he had been released, he was imprisoned again for parole violation and suspicion of robbery. Suspicion? Mm Mm-hmm. They thought he had 
committed a robbery, but they didn't have any evidence. <laughs> but what? It's, it's in his record, so they just. <laughs> I, like, I don't even know you can do that to people. Maybe back in the day you could. Yeah, this is 1960. So. Mm-hmm. In 1966, he underwent further examination by two independent psychiatrists, and they both classified him as a borderline psychopath, and which means that he was highly manipulative and unable to acknowledge the consequences of his actions. Um, Bitteker explained to one of the psychiatrists that his criminal activities gave him a feeling of self-importance, and he also insisted that his environment and upbringing decreased his ability to resist committing crimes. Mm. He was prescribed anti antipsychotic medication, and a year later he was released. A month after his parole in, ni- in um, June of 1967, he was arrested and convicted of theft and leaving the scene of an accident. He was sentenced to five years, but he was released three years later in April of 1970. <laughs> I told y'all, in and out. Yeah, right, in and out, in and out. So in March of 1971, he was arrested for burglary. And due to repeat parole violations, he was sentenced to serve between six months and 15 years in um, October of 1971. But three years later, he was released. In 1974, one of his last sentences was for attempted murder. This was fucked. He tried to stab a grocery store employee in the parking lot. So he tried to steal a steak and put it in his pants and the grocery store employee like followed him out like, hey, sir, I know you stole that steak. And he turned around and tried to kill him. Yeah. Stabbed him in the chest. He barely missed the heart and the employee was alive, but he tried to run away and he was restrained by two other employees. Oh my fucking God. Is this like the 70s, right? It's what they made like four dollars an hour the first seven, off i'm not running after nobody no that's same. Not same. Same. this is the moral of this story <laughs> don't run over after anybody not, that stole you're not getting no more money on your check no <laughs> come on you're not getting no hazard pay during a global pandemic so you definitely <laughs> not you definitely like getting shit from stopping somebody from stealing a steak i'm a like steak. sir cook it well and have fun right <laughs> no i feel like in general if i see anybody stealing food go ahead because if you're stealing food, you need the food. Right. So that was like his first like instance with like killing somebody. Trying to kill somebody. Well, yeah, trying to. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. yeah. So I feel like his whole, before that, his like thing was um, just maybe stealing like gave him some, some kind of high. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Or made him feel like valid or good about like who he was. Right. Uh-huh. And then it kind of just escalated from And then there. when he like tried to kill him, oh, this. This is this the new new shit. <laughs> I like this. This <laughs> <laughs> Good and tasty. Things are looking good. No, it's so fucked. It is fucked. It's not it. I mean, it is. So, um, Bitteker was convicted of assault with a deadly with a deadly weapon, and he was sent to California Men's Colony in San San Luis Obispo, and that's where he met Roy Norris, his partner in crime. That just sounds like a guy who wears like the yellow flannel or the yellow plaid they store in the Roy. 70s with the big ass glasses and the little <laughs> hair. Yeah, like, I know you know exactly what I'm talking about. I just, <laughs> I just, I see it. But well, I have a question. What's a men's colony? It's, it's, it's called, called kind of gay. It's literally called <laughs> California Men's Colony. I was like, what the fuck is that? It's just YMCA. You just put it right. Anybody got those shorts on? Like, <laughs> sure. It's the real. It's a 70s, so you know it's a real. Show. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they just do water aerobics on it. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cute. Anyway, so um, that's where he met Roy Norris, and we'll go through Roy's uh, background real quick. So Roy Norris was born in Greeley, Colorado, in February 5th of 1948. He's an Aquarius. 
he was conceived out of wedlock and his parents got married because they didn't want the social stigma of having like a quote Ill- illegitimate child at the time mm-hmm. that's why you fucked up right now. yeah so his extended family lived like kind of close to him because his grandfather um, did real estate and they were just able to have a home close to them his father worked in a scrapyard and his mom had substance abuse issues and she was pretty much home all the time so he occasionally lived with his parents throughout his childhood and adolescence, but he had repeated repeated stays in foster families throughout the state of Colorado due to not being cared for by his parents. Mm-hmm. He often went hungry, didn't have sufficient clothing, and endured sexual abuse while in these foster um, homes. Oh, no. Yeah. So when he was 16, he was living with his parents. He visited the home of a relative who was a woman in her early 20s, and he began speaking to her sexually inappropriately she told him to leave and she told his father and his father threatened to beat him so because of this norris stole his father's um car and drove to the rocky mountains did i do the content warnings uh you didn't i don't Mm -hmm. think so okay we haven't gotten to too bad of stuff so i apologize if y'all are in this and um this is too late but i'll put them in the show notes because we're about to get to some shit. Um, content uh, warnings, robbery, petty crimes. We've talked about that. Extreme physical assault, mention of suicide, attempted suicide, mention of sexual abuse, a lot of violent rape, mention of incest, extreme torture, and kidnapping. That's a lot. Oh, my so God. What is this? That's all the triggers. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm sorry if y'all got this far and you can't continue. We understand. But, um, yeah, just so you know, before I get into the thick of it. Okay, here we go. So after his father threatened to beat him for um, speaking suggestively to his relative, Norris stole his dad's car and he drove to the Rocky Mountains where he attempted to commit suicide by injecting air into his arm, which would have been an air embolism. Oh and I God. learned that from Ellie Wong Carter. I know what, I've never, what? Yeah, I didn't know yeah. either. I've I'm, Well, I've seen it on a bunch of different murder shows that I watch. Mm. Please, yeah, I would never do this to anybody. Please don't sideways me. But anyway, um, yeah, so, like, when you inject air into someone's stream, I guess, like, it's too much air. Your cells are supposed to carry oxygen, but when you inject an actual air bubble into somebody's uh, bloodstream, mm-hmm. it gets to their heart, and it causes their heart to, I think, explode, or it causes their, like, arteries to explode or something like that. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. And it's, like basically no way you can trace back to the person who did it or whatever that's why i mean yeah yeah but it sounds familiar because sorry sorry no um, no this is it reminds, do it. <laughs> uh, it reminds me of when people was getting like vaccines back in the day mm-hmm. you remember how they used to do it like topically i can't explain it but they had like um it wasn't a needle but they would like do it at the top of someone's arm and a lot of people was getting like air inside of their system oh that's how I heard about it. I didn't know that that's what it was called, but yeah. I know a lot of people were dying when they were giving. Not now. Not, yeah. in, not in the 2000s. Yeah. Like, oh, vaccinated. I, I think it was like in the 60s or something and people was getting vaccinated and they didn't know that like air, that getting thing. air, yeah, putting air, in, well, it's obviously not the 60s. Mm-hmm. Maybe like the 40s or something. I yeah. don't know. But, uh, yeah. That's wild. I never knew about that. And a lot of people was dying over it. Oh. Hey. Well, now we know what it is, so don't do that shit. Right. right. <laughs> so he failed to um, commit suicide, obviously, and he was later apprehended as a runaway, and he was returned to his parents. So when he got home, his parents told him and his sister that they didn't want them to begin with, mm-hmm. and they planned to get divorced. Whoa. You don't say they something didn't like want the kids to with? Yeah. <sighs> that, and it's like you can see the... the 
similarities between Norris and Bitteker, like their parent relationships with their parents and mm. how they grew up and stuff. So they both had those traumatic childhoods that they just couldn't work their way out of. Mm. So a year after that, when Norris was 17, he dropped out of high school and he joined the Navy, the United States Navy. He was stationed in San Diego in 1965 and was deployed to serve in the Vietnam War in 1969. While he was enlisted, this is fucked up. While he was enlisted in the Navy, Norris committed multiple sexual assaults. In November of 1969, he forced his way into a woman's car. He raped her and he was arrested and charged with forcible rape and assault with attempt to commit rape. He was released on bail. Oh, my fucking God. Are you serious? Mm -hmm. While he was waiting for his court date, he committed another sexual assault. What? No. Yeah. While he was waiting to get charged for the first one, he committed another one. In February of 1970, he attempted to deceive a woman who was alone into allowing him into her apartment. Oh, my God. She refused to let him in, and he attempted to break into her house. She managed to alert law enforcement and Norris was arrested and then released on bail again. My goodness. This is all why he was enlisted. So less than three months later, a military psychologist diagnosed him with severe schizoid personality and they put him on administrative discharge, citing that he had psychological problems. Mm, and he has fucking criminal problems too. I don't right, know. but they just I don't didn't, know. that wasn't even... A part of it. I feel like they... I mean, I'm sure he does have severe schizoid personality um, issues or disorder, but I feel like they use that as, like, a cover-up for the sexual assault so that they wouldn't mm-hmm. have... Like, that wouldn't... He's a whole racist, story. Yeah. yeah. But, the, but the military has a terrible reputation right. for doing shit like that. They don't give a fuck. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So they, they just were like, oh, you're on leave now. Right. Fucked up. So in May of 1970, while he was still on, on bail for the last offense... He attacked a female student who was stalk- he was stalking on San Diego State University campus. He repeatedly struck her on the back of the head with a rock Damn. until she slumped to her knees before he repeatedly beat her head against the sidewalk. What? As he knelt on her back. She lived. Oh, oh my, my God. fucking God, no. Yeah. I was about to say it's giving you, and then I was like, never mind. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, she lived. And shortly Jeez. after he was charged with assault with a deadly weapon, he was committed to five years at the Atasadero State Hospital. Five years? That's mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where he was classified as a mentally disordered sex offender. No. So for all that, he was sentenced to five years. And once he com- completed that sentencing in 1975, he was released on formal probation charges after the prison doctor declared that he was, quote, no further a danger to others. Yeah. So well, I guess they thought he'd be re- he'd been rehabilitated. Yeah, they were wrong as shit. Yeah, no. So the- what were they doing there? Like, is a medical hospital? Mm-hmm. Medical hospital. So like, I'm assuming they were like therapy and yeah. But I mean, this was the '70s, so it probably wasn't anything that was like mm-hmm. good. You know, it was probably like fucked up, like medicated. Yeah. You know, just like heavily medicating him. Right. This is all speculation. I didn't do the research into this, but I'm just assuming because of the time. Yeah, because mm-hmm. it's the 70s. I mean, I feel like even though they, even though they didn't have the like data on serial killers and serial rapists and stuff like that, obviously, if 
this person had been black or brown, like y'all would have kept them in right. prison the first time. Yeah. Like, you probably wouldn't have even put them in a medical hospital. Right. right. They would have just gone to prison. Or even try to rehabilitate them. Right. No. Yeah. And not at all. Like when he stole that first loaf of bread, he would have been in jail. He never got it for twenty years. Oh, yeah. thirty. <laughs> to life. Somewhere around there. Right. right. So uh, he was released with um, no further danger to others. And just three months later, he approached a 27-year-old woman walking home from a restaurant on Redondo Beach, and he offered her a ride on his motorcycle. She said no. And he then proceeded to park his bike, grab a scarf, twist it around her neck before informing her that he intended to rape her. He dragged her unconscious body into nearby bushes and then raped her. So the rape was reported to the police, but they were initially unable to find the perpetrator. But one month later, the victim of the crime saw his motorcycle out and about. Mm -hmm. And she noted the license plate number, which she then gave to the police, and they were able to find him. So he was arrested for rape, and one year later, he was tried and convicted for the offense. Let me guess. Um, He was out um, in five years. I was going to say like four, maybe four or five years. Three years with bail. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. But this is when he went to um, the men's colony. Mm -hmm. So he was sent to the California men's colony. And that's where he found and met his partner. His partner, partner? Or was it like both? Like partner in crime. No, partner. Partner in crime? (laughs) (laughs) That's the kind of partner you're thinking of. Is it both in? It could be. I mean, it could be. Hey. They're the only two that know. That's what I'm saying. They only know what happened. It could very well be. I'm always trying to make everything good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, are you sure about that? (laughs) Men's colony. It's a little spicy. They're like, like, oh yeah, they were roommates. And they were (laughs) roommates. No, for real. This shit, I don't know. This shit is exhausting as fuck because it's just like, okay, one. You know, rehabilitation isn't like the focus of people being locked up and then they them not prioritizing women at all. Like I can just imagine what it would have been like in the seventies. Like they didn't give a fuck. <laughs> like right. I mean to think that like these people continue to be released from prison to just like two seconds later go out and commit the same, the same? crime. And then they went back and nobody was like, There's a pattern here. Yeah. Like maybe we should switch some shit up. Nobody thought that. Yeah. It's giving white. Yeah. yeah, very. Okay, so um, the two met at the prison, and they initially became acquainted in 1977, which was one year after Norris arrived at San, San Luis Obispo. Bittaker's impression, first impression of Norris was that he was savvy, and he was largely associated with hardened criminals from motorcycle gangs, and he also dealt in contraband and drugs. So the two gradually became closer acquainted and began talking in friendly terms. And um, Norris taught Bittiger how to make jewelry. It's gay. <laughs> K, K, was, K was right. <laughs> yeah, that was like a weird detail. Like friendship bracelets? I don't or... know. I'm like, what type of jewelry y'all talking about? Hmm. Oh, or like sex jewelry? Like, like, you know, like the bees? Yeah. <laughs> Cute. Um, so... Norris claims that Bittaker saved his life because he had been attacked by fellow inmates multiple times and apparently Bittaker helped him and I guess that bound them because of prisoner code. Mm-hmm. So in, by 1978, they were both really close and they started discovering that they shared an interest, multiple interests, mm. specifically in domination, sexual violence, misogyny, and rape. Mm. 
Making jewelry is your hobby. Right. That's you an know? interest. Yeah. Motorcycles, yeah. <laughs> Not misogyny. <laughs> um, so Norris even divulged that the biggest stimulation for him was seeing frightened young women. Oh my god. And that's the primary reason why he had a lot of sexual offenses in his past. And Bitteker, who is not known to have committed any sexual offenses prior to meeting Norris, remember he was the robber. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He divulged that he had, had, if he ever did rape a woman, that he would kill her so that he wouldn't leave a witness to the crime. Oh Listen, I'm scared of them. No, I'm scared. I'm scared. <laughs> I'm scared too. I'm fucking terrified. And this is why, you know, while while you're in jail, I feel like everybody deserves some level of privacy. But it's these type of conversations I'm like, I wish somebody had overheard. Yeah. Because if they had none of the shit that comes next would have happened. Yeah. But or would it? I mean, they I mean, definitely did have a pattern and they got to go to a summer camp. Yeah, but right. <laughs> a summer camp. <laughs> making jewelry and talking about fixing motorcycles and rape. And kicking their legs up in the air right. and their diaries. Having <laughs> queer experiences. like not laying on their stomach with their... <laughs> picking flowers and Spreading shit. each other's okay. hair and painting them. Right. Like, uh-uh, I'm not fucking with it. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> it's just so, I don't know. It's like on one end, it's like the other dude is like, um, Bitteker. It's mm-hmm. like, um, he was just stealing stuff. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> he was. And it's not, that, it's not that stealing and then like stabbing the grocery store person is good. Yeah. But it's interesting that meeting this person, like, led him to do all this other stuff that he like didn't have a pattern with at all mm-hmm. i'm like well damn if he hadn't met this person what would have mm-hmm. happened to him he but would've... i guess the thing that they had similar though was like their mental health issues yeah. so like him literally stealing wasn't connected to like oh i need more resources i'm hungry it's like no i'm stealing because it's fine yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So- <laughs> <laughs> i'm stealing because so, my mama don't care about me either. right right yeah so i guess he's trying to find that like whatever he gets from stealing he's also trying to find it in other ways. Mm. Ooh. Okay, so when they were alone, they regularly discussed plans to abduct, dominate, rape, and murder teenage girls once they were released. Oh my God. So the fantasy evolved into an elaborate plan to rape and murder a girl of each teenage year. What? So a girl from age 13 to 19. No, burn it with fucking fire. How do you even come up with some shit like that? No, that's deranged. They planned to kill them to make sure that they didn't have any witnesses and therefore that they would never get caught. And they vowed that once they were both released that they would become reacquainted and carry out this plan. So in 1978, October 15th, Bitteker was released from the colony. <laughs> Sounds like Handmaid's Tale. Right, yeah. the colony. California men's colony. So after he had been paroled, he returned to L.A. and found work as a, as a skilled, I'm sorry, skilled machinist, machinist. He worked with machines. I don't know what, how to pronounce Why it. Why didn't he just keep doing that? All right. That's what I'm saying. And listen to this. He made $1,000 a week. Uh, in the 70s? 70s? Bitch, that's good now. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Get out of my head. Girl. I need a $1,000 right that's now. That's a good-ass job. I know they got dental. Like, What? I'm about you to look it up. No. I'm uh, sorry. Like, what's that worth today? Yeah, no. $4,000 a week. Mm-hmm. That's $4,000 a month. You're Shut. a dummy bitch. Okay, this can't be right. 
I just looked up what a thousand dollars in nineteen seventy would be worth today. How is this right? It? it might be seven thousand sixty nine dollars. Was shit five cent back then? Like five cent for that is a joke. How much was rent? Like, that is a fucking joke. How much was rent in nineteen seventy eight? Like average rent in California? Well, like forty five dollars. I think he was staying in a motel. But also that kind of this is gonna sound like a reach, but fuck it, I'm black. Who's gonna beat my ass? Me. <laughs> Men, <laughs> men value the effect that the, the the benefit that they get from misogyny over capitalism. Mm-hmm. You could have, you took that money. You could have respectfully, you know, just went about your life and had healthy sexual relationships with people or whatever the fuck. But the 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 benefit that they get from the like violence against women is really what they were going for, mm-hmm. and it trumped everything. Right? Yeah. Because he was willing to give up living good. Your mama and daddy not loving you, bitch. You can go to therapy every single day with that type of money. Mm-hmm. Like, you could afford rent anywhere. You could move out of the fucking country. Right. You could literally do anything. And you decided, you was like, you know what? I think we're going to take advantage of some teenage girls. Like, that's what you want to do with your life. So fucked. I mean, he had Fuck he had a trade. He Like you said, he could have lived anywhere, making money anywhere. And this is Bitteker. This is the one who was just the stealer. Yeah. And I'm so, like... I'll be like, you bum-ass nigga. I'm not fucking with you no more. <laughs> Get this nigga some help. R. Kelly. What? Oh. R. Kelly. Um, it was... This is just a, a rough estimate. Uh-huh. Not even in California, but just like in the U.S. Uh-huh. It was like... Uh, I see like n- random numbers, but I see like $12. $14. For $25 for like a hotel room a night. Oh, a night. Yeah. That's probably what it was. Because he stayed in a motel. It was probably towards the lower end. Right. Damn. That's $100 a week out of 1000 So this next part is what... Statue. I'll just read it. It got... Because I was like, huh? It doesn't really track. So besides... Even though he classified himself as a loner, he became really friendly with a lot of the people in his neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And he earned a reputation as being generous and helpful. And he occasionally donated money to the Salvation Army... And he was known on one occasion to purchase large amounts of fast food and wine and handing it out to people who were houseless in downtown L.A. I'm confused now. That's what I'm saying. Like, it's so strange because it, I don't know. Maybe men are most affected by other men. (laughs) Hey. His nigga got out of jail and he was like, oh, yeah, I got to jump back into my old shit. Right. We're going to make bracelets together. So this this is kind of where he falls back into what we know him oh, as. Um, he was really popular with local teenagers because he just kept a supply of beer and weed in his motel room. And he would just invite teenagers over all the time. And he wanted it to be that way because Fuck. he's into um, young women. So... <sighs> okay, so that was what Bideker was up to. And in the meantime... On January 15th, 1979, which was three months after Bideker was released, um, Norris was released, and he moved back into his mother's home in Redondo Beach. So one source that I saw, and I I looked at like five to six, and this was the only one that said it, um, said that this is where he began to have an incestuous relationship with his mom. Oh, my God. No more details. They just threw that out there, and I only saw it from one source. So I don't know if it's true. Girl, throw the whole story away. (laughs) (laughs) What? That's yeah. horrible. You can't have healthy sexual relationships with women your age who are not related to you, but you can do that with some, not on because. But maybe he had like trauma with his mom or something, and maybe like he wanted her to love him, and 
No, I mean, that kind of love. No, I'm not. Hey, I know, I'm yeah, just, I know. I'm they, just saying like, that could be what his logic. Like, was it his yeah. mom taking advantage of him, or they didn't oh say so? My God, but I mean, she's older. She's a mom. So <laughs> I mean, she she didn't want him in the first place. And mm. I mean, that don't add up. She didn't want him, but then he came back. And she it says an incestuous relationship. It doesn't say that he raped his mom or anything like that. Yeah. So it seems like. From what it said, it seemed consensual. I mean, for what it could... You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It hurts. But anyway, okay, let's make forward. Because grossed out. So within one month of his release, he raped a woman who he abandoned in a desert. One month. He soon found employment as an electronics technician in Compton. And soon after, he received a letter from Bideker. And in late February, they met at a hotel and rekindled their plan to kidnap and rape young teenage girls. So, in order for Lawrence Bitteker and Roy Norris to abduct the girls, the young women, um, Bitteker decided that they needed a van opposed to a car. And um, with financial assistance from Norris, Bitteker purchased a silver-gray 1977 GMC Vandura van in February of 1979. So, the van had no side or rear windows, and it had a large passenger side side sliding door you know like typical mm-hmm. van shit mm-hmm. and according to Bideker, when viewing the sliding door he realized that he or norris could just pull somebody in really close and they wouldn't have to open the doors all the way damn gross oh my fucking god they named the van murder mac no oh my god is it a white van it's silver let me show you okay oh uh, because i had that that white murder yeah, van that white kidnapping van <laughs> nah it's silver it looks I guess- like I guess we know it that way because of the time that we were born in. But back then, this was probably like a brand new thing to them. Mm. Like technology, communication. Oh, my God. They didn't have cell phones. Like they didn't have social media. So they weren't able to like mass communicate trends like that. I mean, it's still given what yeah, I thought. It's definitely, it still, yeah. definitely given. That's so sad. That's one of the most famous lines of Jennifer's body when um, they asked what car the niggas was driving when they kidnapped Jennifer or whatever. Mm-hmm. She's like, I don't know an 89 rapist like that's that's like oh. a that's that's what they were talking about that truck right there got you i've yeah. never seen that but... <gasps> i've never seen jennifer's body wait Is what scary no i can't believe you haven't watched oh uh, it makes sense why you haven't watched it it's I mean, like it a, sounds like a horror movie it's it's not it's not it's it's in the horror like it, it's horror adjacent but it's mostly about like Okay, so it's about this girl. <laughs> this is a breakaway from the story, I know, but I'm a real Don't quick. spoil it, though. But... Yeah, it, well, it's about this girl, and um, they go to see this band, and it's not what they... It ends up being, like, some super, like, spiritual, satanic-type shit, and then okay. her best friend has to, like, get her out of this situation. That's okay. that's most I can say without spoiling it. You gotta so, watch it. I'll watch it with you. It's so good. I'll watch Come it with on, you, too. We, we love it, and we didn't watch it this Halloween, so... Okay. I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> you 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 don't like scary stuff. So. No, I don't. Yeah, so scary. you'll you'll be you'll be fine. Okay, yeah. okay. Back okay. To the story. <laughs> okay, so from February to June of 1979, Bitteker and Norris picked up 20 women hitchhikers. They cruised along the Pacific Coast Highway and they occasionally stopped at the beach to talk to girls, but they didn't assault any of these girls. They were just like practice runs. It was a way for them to develop ways to lure girls into the van voluntarily, and it was a way for them to discover secluded locations. And the majority of the time, they would bring the girls to the mountains to have their pictures taken, and then they just drop them back off. Mm. So in late April, the pair found an isolated fire road in the San Gabriel Mountains. 
not from California. I didn't know what the fuck a fire road it was. Yeah, me either. But I Googled it. Show me a picture? Uh, yeah, I can show a picture. So basically, it's a gap in vegetation or other combustible material that acts as a barrier to slow or stop the progression of a bushfire or wildfire. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Do you still want to see a picture? Yeah. Well, if you want to show me. Yeah. But it's like if there's like a, a lot of vegetation or like a huge field, they'll just like create a road through the middle of it. Oh. So that if a fire comes down, the road will stop it rather than like continuing across the whole thing. Oh, oh I didn't know. That's smart. I know. I was like, damn. I bet you that's some indigenous shit. It probably is. Probably, yeah. mm-hmm. It's all you said, I bet you. Oh, I said that? <laughs> I bet you. No, we, we heard it. Okay. <laughs> they get it. This is funny. I'll talk fast. I'll talk. So it was an isolated fire road and um, they found it and they broke open a locked gate with a crowbar and then they replaced the lock with one that they owned. And that is where that they, they would carry out all of their bullshit. Okay, so now that we're here, we're going to get to the murders. They are pretty detailed and horrible. So again, if content, warning. content warnings... I'll run through them again just in case, y'all. Extreme physical assault, violent rape, extreme torture, kidnapping. So here we go. So on June 24th of 1979, they killed their first victim, 16-year-old Lucinda Lynn Schaefer. Schaefer was last seen leaving a Presbyterian church meeting in Redondo Beach. So in written accounts of this day, Bittaker said that him and Norris first finished constructing a bed that they had installed in the rear of the van, like earlier in the day. They constructed this bed, and under the bed they placed tools, hence tool, mm-hmm. yeah, toolbox killers, um, clothes in a cooler that they filled with beer and soft drinks. So at around 11, they drove to the beach, they were drinking beers, <laughs> smoking grass, they were smoking weed. And they were flirting with girls, and they didn't have, like, any set plan. And around 7.45, Norris spotted Schaefer walking down a side street, and he told Bitteker, quote, there's a cute little blonde. So they unsuccessfully attempted to entice Schaefer into the van. They had offered her weed and a ride home, and she was like, no. And they eventually drove further ahead and parked, like, in a driveway. Norris exited the van, and he opened the door, and he kind of... He leaned out of the van enough that he could see, but that nobody could tell that he was um, sitting in the van. Uh-huh. He was obscured from view. And when Schaefer walked past the van, Norris exchanged a few words with her before he dragged her into the van and closed the door. This is like almost exactly what I feel like my fear always was growing up. Uh-huh. Like when it came to those creepy white vans, uh-huh. like that's exactly how I thought it would always happen. Uh-huh. Like walk by it or, or they would just drive by and just snatch you in. Like that right. shit's scary. Even now when I go for runs, like if a van passes by, I go in the house. Right. I don't even like, I'm not finna duck or jump in somebody's driveway. I'm going home. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So Bitteker, who was driving, turned the radio up to full volume and Norris bound Schaefer's arms and legs and gagged her with duct tape as Bitteker drove down the fire road. So they took turns raping her before oh they both attempted and failed to manually strangle her. It's so horrible. They failed? What did they mean to fail? They tried to strangle her with, like, just with their hands, oh, but they okay. couldn't. Um, they were trying to kill her, oh, but they okay. couldn't do it. 
So in the court documents, it was reported that Lucinda asked for time to pray if they were going to kill her. (gasps) I know that broke my heart. So they told her they weren't going to kill her and they didn't give her time to pray, but then they murdered her. So Norris attempted to strangle her for 45 seconds, but he said that he became disturbed by the look in her eyes and he like ran to the front of the van, van and started throwing up. And this was, this was, um, this wasn't Norris? No, this was Norris, which is interesting. Right. Because he said that, that was the thing that excited him. Mm -hmm. Why don't you just stop there? Right. Bitteker then manually strangled Schaefer until she collapsed to the ground and began convulsing. So this is where the tools come into play. So they used pliers and they tightened a wire coat hanger around her neck. Oh, no. Yeah. What? And you'll see that method um, carried out throughout oh my a lot of the other ones. So he has a hand like... <laughs> Excuse me. Oh Norse. my god. Oh yeah, look at... <laughs> That's the look like? Mm-hmm. <laughs> No. I'm not getting another. Of course, I'm not getting another damn shoes. Fuck right. no! Like, I, of course, we would say that, but everybody looked like that. In the no, but they said no. Remember, she said no. Oh yeah, yeah. So that is true. But that is how a lot of white people looked in the '70s. Yeah. that was like what they looked like. Mm-hmm. And now that's like our standard edition creeper. <laughs> like. But it's interesting how, um, like, who took a, the step up mm-hmm. in the situation and who didn't, right. considering their backgrounds, right? Um. Okay, so they tightened the coat hanger around her neck and they died. And then they wrapped her body in a plastic shower curtain and threw her over the canyon. On July 8th, 1979, two weeks after murdering Schaefer, Bittaker and Norris encountered 18-year-old Andrea Joy Hall. And she was hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway. And again, 70s, almost 80s, people were hitchhiking all the fucking time. So they slowed down to offer her a ride. But another vehicle pulled up in front of them, and she accepted a ride from that vehicle. Thank goodness. (laughs) Well. Yeah. Bitteker and Norris followed the vehicle and waited for Hall to get out. What? And then when she did, Norris hid in the back of the van and made it seem like Bitteker was alone. And then Bitteker offered Hall a drink from the cooler that they had in the back that they had recently stocked. And when she went back to retrieve the the drink, Norris pounced on her. Oh my god. They fought, she fought back, but he managed to subdue her by twisting her arm behind her back while she screamed. Norris then gagged her with tape and bound her wrist and ankles. And they drove her down the road further than they had taken Schaefer down this um, fire road. So Bittaker raped her once, Norris raped her, I'm sorry, Bittaker raped her twice and Norris raped her once. And they thought that they had seen another car. So Bittaker forced Hall to walk up a hill while she was naked alongside the road and perform oral sex on him while he ordered her to pose suggestively for Polaroid pictures. Oh my God. I told y'all this one was fucked up. And why do they always, like, the worst ones always take pictures? It's like they want, like, memorabilia or something. Yeah. They want to be able to, like, relive the situation, I guess. Fucking souvenirs and shit. It's fucked up. So they drove to a third location where Bittaker walked Hall up another hill while Norris went to a nearby store to buy alcohol. And when Norris returned, Bittaker was alone. Hall was no longer there. And he had two new Polaroid pictures. So Bittaker informed Norris that he had told Hall he was going to kill her. And he challenged her to give her as many reasons as she could come up with as to why she should live. Then he... 
I wish I could just give all the con. I wish I didn't even have to tell the story. It's so fucked. I'm like, why do I choose this? But he thrusted an ice pick through her ear into her brain. Oh. oh yeah. Oh, my fucking God. Then he turned her body over and thrust the ice pick into her other ear, stomping on the handle until it broke. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. He then strangled her before throwing her body off of a cliff. I thought she would have died from the ice pick. Right. That's what I thought, too. But, yeah. Okay. Yeah, these secluded areas are so creepy to me too. Just because, yes. like, there's so much space to literally do anything. And they're in uh, LA; it's a desert. Yeah. Like, there's big ass just areas of nothing. Mm-hmm. It's so fucking creepy. Okay, so on September third, Bitaker and Norris observed two girls named Jackie Doris Gilliam. She was age fifteen, and Jacqueline Leah Lamp, who was age thirteen. She was the youngest. They were sitting at a bus stop um, bench near Hermosa Beach. They had been hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway before they they were observed at the bus stop. So the two men offered the girls a ride, and the girls accepted. Excuse me. So once inside the van, Norris offered them weed. They accepted the weed. And shortly after entering the van, Gilliam and Lamp realized that Bitteco was steering them away from the Pacific Coast Highway, and they were driving towards the San Gabriel Mountains. And this is when they realized, like, shit wasn't right. And they started to protest, but Bitterker and Norris attempted to make excuses, basically, like, telling them why they had to go a different way. Mm-hmm. But the girls didn't believe them. So Lamp, who was a 13-year-old, attempted, attempted to open the sliding door. And that was when Norris hit her on the back of the head with a bag filled with lead weights. Oh, oh fuck. And this briefly knocked her unconscious. Oh, my God. He then overpowered Gilliam, the 15-year-old, in... He did this by binding and gagging her. And while he was doing this, Lamp regained regained consciousness and attempted to flee the van. Norris twisted her arm behind her back and dragged her back into the van. While the girls struggled with Norris, Bitteker realized that there was a potential witness to the whole thing. And he decided to stop the van, punch Gilliam in the face, and assisted Norris in binding and gagging both of the girls. What's, okay, so this twisting people's arms behind their back, what is he, like, some fucking karate master or something? What the fuck? I feel like it's similar to, like, when you're arrested. Yeah. That's kind of mm. what I thought. Like, they would do that. And how was he able to do that so quickly? And That's weird. I mean, like, in this situation, um, Bitteker was driving, so Norris was back there with two people, and I feel like that's kind of why he wasn't able to, like, put, like, make sure any of them were, like, what's the word? Not and moving then, around. And then the potential witness was that somebody who, like, saw them driving by. Mm-hmm. And, oh, okay. Yeah. Wait, and what did free- he do to them again? No, they didn't do, he didn't do anything to the witness, but he saw that somebody could have potentially saw. And he was like, okay, we need to stop the struggling in the back of the car. And that's when he stopped the car. And he's like, okay, let me help him get these two girls so they're not, like, flailing around trying to fight. And mm. people can, like, visibly see that something's wrong. Mm-hmm. So after they um, were able to bind and gag the girls, they drove both of them to San Gabriel Mountains, where they were held captive for two days. They were bound, gagged, and between, I'm sorry, they were bound and gagged between repeated instances of sexual and physical abuse. Both of the men slept in the back of the van alongside the um, two girls, and they would take turns to look out. 
And throughout the time, the young girls were forced to take more Polaroid pictures by themselves. And um, this also happened while they were being sexually abused. Mm. (sighs) This is just so fucked up. So in one of the instances where Bideker raped Gilliam, he also created a tape recording of himself sexually abusing her. And he forced Gilliam to pretend that she was his cousin. Ew, what? Yeah. What? Yeah. Does he have some sort of trauma with his cousin? Or was he, like, attracted to his cousin or something? Maybe. It's weird. I mean, I don't know. Because wasn't it Norris who was, like... With his mom, yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. But he's adopted, so, I mean... It... I mean, but it's And his family left him, right? So... Right. That's how you want to connect with your family? (laughs) So Bideker is also known to have tortured Gilliam by stabbing her breast with an ice pick. Oh my goodness. I've heard of this in multiple cases. Yeah, no, not specifically with an ice pick, but they like cut breasts as a form of like domination of like a feminine person. Like Mm. they attack the breasts. Mm -hmm. Didn't that happen with the Piedmont um, Park person? Yes, it did. Remember that? Eek. Yeah. So, um, after two days in captivity, Lamp and Gilliam were murdered, and their bodies were thrown over an embankment into Chaparral. Chaparral. I don't know what it is. Chaparral? I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Don't ask me. (laughs) Okay, so the last one, and this is the one that they talked about in the little snippet that Mm we um, Mm -hmm. mentioned in a previous episode. Um, on October 31st, 1979, which was Halloween, Bideker and Norris abducted their final victim, which was 16-year-old Shirley Lynette Ledford. She was abducted outside of a gas station where she was trying to hitchhike a ride from a Halloween party in the suburbs of L.A. Investigators say that she took a ride from them because she recognized Bideker as a, reg- as a regular at the restaurant where she was a waitress. So Norris offered um, Ledford weed and she refused. Bitteker drove the van to a secluded street where Norris drew a knife. He then bound and gagged Ledford with construction tape. Um, Bitteker traded places with Norris um, as like driver and then the person in the back. And he remained in the back with Ledford while they drove for around an hour. Bitteker then removed the tape from her mouth and legs and proceeded to slap and mock her. And he beat her with fists repeatedly, shouting for her to scream louder. And it was kind of like... I mean, even though I gave so many details about these murders, there were far more um, horrible details that I decided not to include. And um, in the past murders, it was clear that Bitteker, like, got off by seeing the young girls, like, um, showing how much they were hurting. So it kind of came out in this. um, But he did that with a lot of the other girls as well, like, told them, like, express how much I'm hurting you and stuff like that. So he then began began striking her with a hammer. He beat her breast with his fist and tortured her with pliers both between and throughout instances where he raped and sodomized her. So Norris and Bideker then switched places again and he began beating Ledford with a sledgehammer and what? he striked her elbows 25 times, breaking her elbow. Uh, that's why I was I was wondering then like where is he striking her that she's still alive? He I guess it's a sledgehammer. Yeah. What is a that, sledgehammer? Is that just a hammer? Like the the 
I guess like the big round the ones. The big ones, like this big. Oh. That they used to like um, hit. Railroad to, tracks. To, oh. To get right. stakes into the ground, maybe. Oh, uh, oops. Oh. I said railroad. Girl, I don't know. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just guessing. Yeah. Tink. Yeah. 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 Uh, I don't know. Yeah, so he was hitting her on her elbow. And he broke her elbow. Ah. It's so much pain. This like about makes that. me itch. Yes. So after two hours in captivity, Norris killed Ledford by strangling her with the coat hanger that he tightened with pliers. He then left her body on the front lawn of a random house in Sunland, California, and her body was found by a jogger the next morning. This is where I believe that they wanted to get caught. Yeah. Because mm. all the other bodies... They threw over cliffs. Yeah, they threw over cliffs in this secluded area. Nobody knew where the fuck they were. Yeah. Here they left it on the front lawn of somebody's house. Like you wanted to get caught for whatever reason, whether or not you like no longer wanted to do these crimes or because you wanted to, you know, some criminals or some murderers want people to know that they're the ones who did that. Yeah, they want to be famous. By this time, it was probably like, oh, the toolbox killer. No one will ever know. Or they was probably given like way more publicity or whatever. And then they were like, oh, like this isn't. If, at first they were doing it for personal gratification but now it's taking a turn where they can actually get some sort of you know like notoriety yeah right and so it's like oh okay cool well let's let them know that it's us mm-hmm. without letting them know well it had been so none of the bodies had been found yet except for obviously the one that was in the front yard it was just like all these young girls were going missing around the okay. same area mm-hmm. so they hadn't necessarily like connected it to one person or two people, they were kind of just like, damn, like these people are just being snatched up. And then when they put the body in the front yard, that's when they were like, oh shit, somebody who was missing is now shown up, um, been found and clearly been tortured and abused. And then that's when they were like, okay, maybe these other young girls had also gone through that same thing. So in November of 1979, Norris became reacquainted with a friend named joseph jackson and this was weird because in some sources his name was joseph jackson and in some sources his name was jimmy dalton i don't know if they're two different people and everyone's confused or if he goes by two different names i don't know either yeah. way he talked to a friend who he had known from the um, california men's colony so norris confided in him um, regarding his embitters activities over the past five months And he included graphic details of the murder of Shirley Ledford, who was the only victim who had been found, the one that they left in the front yard. He also divulged that in addition to the five murders, they abducted or attempted to abduct young women who had either escaped or had been raped and released. So in between these five murders, they had abducted other people that they just they didn't kill for um, multiple different reasons. So after these confessions, Jackson thought all the stories were lies, which y'all, if somebody you know or a friend of yours comes to you and tells you that they did a bunch of shit, believe them. Right. But it's also men. Like, yes. Men, men talk about them. Right. I also think like, um, so this guy was also an incarcerated person and not to say that all people are like this, but depending on what type of activities Joseph Jackson or Jimmy Dalton participated in, he could have the same mindset as um, somebody who wants to take credit for right. a horrible mm. situation. Yeah. So he might be like, nah, Norris just wants people to think that he's the one who did that fucked up right. shit. And yeah, but anyway, he thought they were lies, but he did consult his attorney. 
and his attorney advised him to inform the authorities. So Jackson agreed, and he and his attorney informed the L.A. Police Department, who then re- relayed it to the Hermosa Beach Police. Paul Binham, who was a Hermosa, Hermosa Beach detective, was assigned to investigate these claims, and he found one of the victims that had escaped. So one of the many people that had they had abducted throughout the five murders, he found one of the persons that had escaped. Her name is Robin Robeck. And he presented her with a series of mugshots. And then she was able to identify Bitteker and Norris. So it was at this time that they were referring to the killer as the toolbox killer because they didn't know that it was two people Mm -hmm. committing the crimes. So after they linked Bitteker and Norris to the rape of Robin Roback, the Hermosa police placed Norris under surveillance. And within days of doing that, they observed him dealing in marijuana. Um, <clears throat> out of all the shit this nigga did this non-nigga sorry y'all caught him smoking weed y'all caught him selling weed <laughs> I'm about to beat y'all ass white men get away with everything your friend didn't realize that you were telling the truth about a bunch of murders it's oh you oh you gotta be a white man to get away with this shit that's amazing right. i that's, mean even to get this far after going in and out of jail that many times i just need a crumb i just need like <laughs> i need a rich cracker worth of the privilege like to succeed in life that's all i need like, what the fuck? i'm sorry I'm just... and you would use it to succeed you wouldn't use it to do this fucked up shit right like, like, niggas yeah. getting caught going around school buses like he's <laughs> getting caught in the toll lane going to Gwinnett. Like, fuck. Okay, cool. Just had to get that out of my chest. So on November 20th, 1979, Norris, who they found um, uh, dealing in marijuana, marijuana, he was arrested because it was a parole violation for, like, his other charge back in the, you know. Oh, the, yeah. The men's colony. Yeah. So that same day at the Burbank Motel where Bideker lived, he was arrested for the rape of Robin Robeck who was the person that was able to identify them through the pictures. And though she was able to do that, she had trouble identifying them in a police lineup. But nonetheless, they were both arrested for their parole violations. So they searched both of their apartments, and Bideker's apartments revealed several Polaroid pictures that... Oh, my God. ...where they depicted (laughs) Hall and Gilliam, two of the um, murdered young girls, and those people had both been reported missing. So they're like, oh, shit, clearly these are the people who kidnapped these young women so inside of the van investigators discovered a sledgehammer a plastic bag filled with lead weights a book detailing how to locate police radio frequencies a jar of vaseline two necklaces that were later determined to be from two of the victims and a tape recording of a young woman who was clearly in extreme distress inside norris's apartment the police discovered a bracelet that was taken from ledford's body and they also found over 500 pictures of teenage girls and young women in both the apartments. The Vaseline make must have Yeah, that's disgusting. Yeah, like, oh. I just imagine it being so dirty. Ew, <laughs> same. No cap on it. Like, right. it's just nasty. <laughs> Big ass finger dips in it. <laughs> Ew. Literally how I imagined it. Ew. That's Old so and crusty and shit. Oh, oh, girl. I can't look at another job wrestling in my life. It's so nasty. It's never used for what it's made for. Right. <laughs> Nobody ever has Vaseline for for a good reason. Goodness. (laughs) Okay, so initially, Norris flatly denied any involvement with the murders, rapes, or disappearances. 
But they were like, we have all this evidence. What are you talking about? He was like, oh, shit. Okay. And then he confessed. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> but he portrayed that Bitterker was the one who was doing all of the stuff. And he had just been like there high on drugs the whole time. He also claimed that the level of brutality that Bitterker exhibited toward their victims increased with each instance that they took a new girl. Which, yeah. I mean, was true, but you were still doing yeah. it too. Yeah. So see, he also helped investigators find the bodies of Jackie Gilliam and Leah Lamp on February 9th, 1980. So he was helping them. And in, in February of 1980, Norris and Bitteker were formally charged with the murders of the five girls. And at the arraignment, Bitteker was denied bail. Norris's bail was set to $10,000. What? And you know this they nigga- only have to pay 10%. Right? And he was just making a thousand dollars a week. Y'all know you say. Wait, was that him or was that Bitteker? Oh wait, that was Bitteker. Yeah. But still that's early. Yeah, it was him. But ten thousand dollars that ain't shit. Anyway. Back then it was. <laughs> but okay, so Bitteker is still out, right? And um, Bitteker was died. denied. Oh. Den- oh, you're talking about in general? Yeah. He died. Like now? He was in jail. All both of them died. They're dead now. Oh, you're talking about now in the story? Yeah, I'm talking about now in the story. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. It's it a small ending. It's not. <laughs> it happened in the 70s. I pretty yeah, much figured that. No, he just, he just died in 2019. Okay, now you're ruining the story. I'm just oh! Kidding. I'm just kidding. It's fun. It's like, you know, when like a documentary comes out or like a docu movie uh-huh. or whatever, and people are like, don't spoil the ending. <laughs> it's yeah. like what it happened in history what do you mean <laughs> right. it happened before you were fucking born right. I'm like, no I'm fine I just wanted to know at the time so <laughs> Norris's bail was $10,000 yeah, and Bitteker was free he was no he was denied bail yeah, he, he was, was denied bail so that's what that was okay I got that part but within one month of being charged with the murder, <clears throat> Norris accepted a plea bargain in which he would testify against Bitteker in return for the prosecution agreeing not to seek the death penalty against him. Yeah. Okay. It's musty. <laughs> so on March 18th of 1980, Norris pleaded guilty to four counts of first degree murder, one count of second degree murder, two counts of rape, one count of robbery. Robbery. Prosecutors agreed to not seek the death penalty because of his plea bargain. On May 7th of 1980, Norris was sentenced to 45 years to life with eligibility for parole in 2010. On April 24th, 1980, Bitteker was arraigned on 29 charges of kidnapping, rape, sodomy, and murder, and in addition to various charges of criminal conspiracy and possession of a firearm. He was also charged with two counts of conspiracy to commit murder from December of 1979, when he tried to convince two inmates that were being released soon to murder Robin Robeck, who was the woman who had escaped. Oh my God. He wanted them to murder her so that she couldn't testify against him in his trial. No. So he's being charged for that too. Oh my God. This point. So when asked what he pleaded, Bitteker just didn't respond. He was just quiet. So the judge entered a plea of not guilty on his behalf. Initially, Bitteker was sentenced to death, and his execution date was set to December 29, 1989. He appealed the decision, but on June 11, 1990, the Supreme Court upheld their decision that he was going to be executed. And they set a new date for July 23, 1991. He appealed that decision and was granted a further stay of execution on July 9, 1991. So that basically means the court's just like, 
temporarily suspended his execution. Mm-hmm. And they just never set another date. <laughs> yeah, of course. That. Until he died in 2019, awaiting his execution. That just never happened. In 2010, Norris applied for parole. He was denied. And that made him ineligible for another 10 years. And then he was denied parole again in 2019. He died February 24th, 2020. So they both died in 2019? Um, no, 2020. Norris okay. died 2020. Bitteker okay. died 2019, which was literally the other day. Oh, my God. But it's just like... I want to see how old they were. If you didn't want to go to jail... Just don't do it. <laughs> exactly. That's all you had to <laughs> like, do. Like, I don't get it. Ding! Podcast over. <laughs> right. We solved it. <laughs> you did all of that. Like, all of this. For all fuck, of it. For fuck what? And then was like, oh, I don't want to go to jail. They didn't want to fucking die. But also, why'd you throw, the, throw like, that person's body on the lawn? I honestly right. feel like... I mean, eventually, I hope they would have got caught. Yeah, same. But I feel like if they had just done what they did to all the other bodies to the fifth body it would have been a minute yeah but they might have continued to kill people but it's the 70s they could have just left where they were and went somewhere else right nobody would find them they would probably just like get a new id from the gas station and move on (laughs) (laughs) that's how it used to be yeah i mean this is like before 9-11 they could have gone on a plane without any form of id yeah they could have oh yeah they could have like they could have done so much shit they could have gone to another country yeah not saying that they started should have done all the way the fuck over. That's one of them doing the interview. Ew. Uh, no, that's fine. But also, I don't. I don't. What the fuck? Like, I just. <laughs> I don't even know. <laughs> that's why, like, these that's people so don't have any remorse. There's but no way. They yeah. want that. That's they want. They want yeah. to get interviews and be on TV and be Googleable and all that stuff. One hundred percent. I've been rehabilitated. No, you haven't. And, and, and while they were in jail the whole time, they all they both did interviews. Oh, gross. Just all the time. And there's actually, I mean, there's a lot of TV shows about it, but there was a documentary that came out earlier this mm-hmm. year on Peacock. Yes. It's also on Oxygen. Oh, wow. So it has interviews from Bitteker that he did with a criminologist. I wonder if that's what that is. And he shared his side of the story, quote unquote. And it features insights from law enforcement, journalists, and family members of the victim. So if you're interested in well, learning yeah. any more... You can watch that documentary, but I feel like this was far more than enough. <laughs> right. I don't need to learn about these people ever, again. <laughs> right. ever again. But I also feel like so with Mind Hunters. I don't know if y'all seen that show, but they basically interviewed serial killers like in depth mm-hmm. to get a pattern as to like why you know why people kill. Um, that's where they found out that people don't normally cross racial lines. Mm-hmm. People normally um, kill because they have a fucked up relationship with their mom, like or almost incestuous relationship with their mom, or maybe like just don't have any sexual boundaries mm-hmm. or an absent father's stuff like that. So mm-hmm. doing that research, I feel like if it's interviews for that purpose, then I get it. But I don't know. When, once you get into the point where like they're always going in for interviews and mm-hmm. stuff like that, that's when it becomes a form of celebrity. Yeah. And then it, it loses its scientific purpose right Right. i agree there's got to be a line and i understand i mean like we have a true crime podcast like we're interested in these type of stories and Mm -hmm. we wouldn't know about them unless they were reported on and people Mm -hmm. talked about them and stuff but there's got to be like a line to where you're not giving people that status right Mm -hmm. because i mean everybody not everybody but 
their name is all over the place. People know who they are. And like you said, that's probably what they wanted. Right. Right. And it's kind of gross that I guess we're participating in it right now. And and they didn't <laughs> have to pay rent. So what? I said and it, they didn't have to pay rent. Either. And they didn't have to pay no fucking rent. <laughs> <laughs> but we're different because we black and we roasting them. So Right. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> well y'all, that was the toolbox killers. <sighs> that was some quite extensive research. You right. Did Shout out to Aaron. We're gonna go take a nap now, <laughs> right? Because right. that was intense. But yeah, mm-hmm. I feel like hopefully these fan. I'm, I'm maybe I will watch the documentary. I'm in- interested. Yeah, I don't know if you want to watch it now. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I want to hear from the family members of the victims mm-hmm. to see if they feel like what like the consequences of their actions felt like in any way. Mm-hmm made them feel I don't know yeah I don't know I mean they did yeah but they died of like natural causes <laughs> no I know, I and know. I, I, that's yeah. like fuck to say yeah but I mean they lived long as fuck they were born in the 40s what did I say Bitteker was like, born in 1940 so they were literally like 80 yeah when they, died. they lived until they were old wow I don't know that's I don't know so people true. This is a fucked up one. We might need to do a lighter one next time. Yeah. Yeah. I was literally yeah, just about to say that. I'm like, this is the one I guess so fun. I know. Okay. <laughs> it's like, what do y'all be doing? I'm like, it's heavy. It's like, let's go watch like Bob's Burgers or something. All right. Let's do another heist. Wait. Oh, y'all didn't like, did y'all like the heist? I loved the heist. But also because I love heists. Right. right. We're just talking now. But the viewers are like, oh, I'm going to sit this one out. That's like our least downloaded episode. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, well. That's okay. Yeah. Anyway, thank you, Kay. Yeah, oh, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> I want to say thank you. What did you you're think? Welcome. I mean, the story was fucked up, clearly. But yeah, how do you feel about podcasting? Um, it's cool. I'm like, yeah. do I want to do a podcast? Y'all, Kay is mm-hmm. very, very funny. Yes. And Kay and Ellie Wadi <laughs> I was talking so much, so we didn't really get to see it. I had to kind of really like, funny. you know, dial down because you know I we we, we just stamp up, stand up around. <laughs> <laughs> so if if you do make a podcast, I will definitely be listening. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Great. So we enjoyed having you. Um, mm-hmm. It was great. What we can you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok at I and a Killer Podcast, and then on Twitter at I and a Killer Pod. Follow us. Yes, please. So yeah. we can have a reason to put up content. Please. We want to know that you love us because we love you. <laughs> you can also find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and really anywhere where you can get music. Mm-hmm. Um, I love looking at the stats and seeing that one person who listens to us <laughs> on their TV or Alexa right. or something. Like, who, who Shout out. We love you because you you using all your resources. Alexa, play I Ain't a Killer Podcast. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I guess that wraps up the show for this week. Yeah. And we will see y'all next week. Bye. 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 Bye.